Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Super excited about this one. Um, You know, you'd think after doing something a hundred times or so that you would kind of have all the bugs and the kinks worked out. But, you know, it's one of those, this was one of those one in a hundreds. And I had a, one of the guests that I've looked up to and kind of, you know, through your book that you wrote, um, with, with David and just following your Instagram feed and some of the stuff that you've pulled off and, and the hard work that you put in chasing mule deer and stuff around. Uh, but I have, uh, Mike, du- Mike Duplan on for the second time. How you doing, Mike? Good evening. I say that because uh, I think this is the latest I've ever done a podcast. Hey. So. Well, I've, I've done them at all hours, the morning, night, evening, day, and... Yeah. Not me, because this is close to bedtime. So. <laughs> close to bedtime. Yeah, <laughs> me me too, I guess. Um, I don't know. Some Sometimes I find that waiting throughout the day, I I my mind gets going all day. You know, I've been thinking about kind of what I would ask you and and sometimes that's better. And then, you know, sometimes early mornings are better because your little mind's a little fresher or whatever, but we'll, uh, yeah. Caffeinated we'll... for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I... I'm not drinking monster energy drink at uh, <laughs> eight in the evening. Do you have the same addiction that I do? Here's my problem, Mike, is I can drink those things and I could be in bed and asleep in an hour. You know what I mean? No, I can't do that. I I've got 30 years of being a firefighter and my sleep's really jacked up from that. So yeah, I have a lot of sleep problems. Yeah. So try to stay away from caffeine after about three in the afternoon. <laughs> that's smart. That's what, uh, that's what my brother does. He's a firefighter yeah. paramedic. And so I kind of, kind of seen secondhand what you guys go through. But... Yeah. So if I sound dull this evening, uh, just blame it on you for, uh, making me do this late Constantly. at night. Fair enough. <laughs> That's always, I'm always the one at fault for these podcast episodes. So, oh man. Yeah. I don't know. One in a hundred, literally uh, one in a hundred when I recorded yours and you know, I, I don't remember every detail. I tried to find my notes and I couldn't find it, but we, we had a really good discussion. I thought on mostly on mule deer. Um, but at the time, Mike, you were uh, just a few weeks, I think away from a big Africa trip and right. You know, the only advantage now is that the fall's come and gone, and um, by the time we got this rescheduled, you know, now we've got that, you've got that awesome adventure under your belt. So what uh, what, what was that like? Was that your first deal over there? Yeah, for sure, my first trip to Africa, and uh, it was interesting. For, and I, I will say that uh, it's not public land hunting in the West, <laughs> and anybody that wants to portray that is full of crap, so... <laughs> Um, and it's not as challenging as the things we do out here in the West, but it's super fun. I mean, I, I absolutely a fantastic time. I, I love the experience. I love the wildlife. Uh, I wrote an article on it for Western Hunter and talked about 
all the conservation efforts that went into propagating wildlife on private land in South Africa and, and the fact that uh, public land is scarce and things are high fence for a reason. And it's not so much to keep the animals in or as, as it is to keep uh, poachers out. Bad and, uh, things out. It's a different kind of poaching there than it is in uh, more rural places like uh, Tanzania and Botswana and stuff where you have indigenous people kind of doing the poaching as opposed to South Africa's pretty uh, modernized for relative to some of the other countries. And so, you know, it's a different kind, but it still happens. And so um, the wildlife there is just absolutely amazing, all the different species and and uh, it really captivated my wife and I both, and I can't wait to go back. So I had a great experience, and and uh, not going to try to say it's anything like what I've done here, but I definitely will do it again. Well, it's, you know, the thing that comes to my mind is how something that is completely not remote backcountry public land like we experience here can still be so raw and so extreme and so um, dangerous, I guess, you know, is kind of the way that Africa comes across. I mean, what, yeah. what was there any, did you have any, you know, near deaths or cool stories or did it kind well, of go as planned or. I did hunt Cape Buffalo. I didn't get charged or anything like that, but you know, the, with Cape Buffalo, there's, there's always a, a danger element and that's why they're called dangerous game. And, and so, um, you know, one of the things about, uh, those animals there is it's they're they're used to humans a little bit more on some of these ranches down there than than uh, truly wild ones and so with that comes a different kind of danger where they're not afraid of you as they are a little bit more as annoyed and maybe indifferent at times but um yeah it's just a different a way different uh situation because you know there there are high fences down there and and you know some people will roll their eyes and and want to pass judgment and i did the same thing before i went in the past and it's not it's not something that you want but it is just the reality of hunting in in africa and south africa is that way and most of the other places are pretty unaffordable for working class guys um, namibia is a little different where they've got vast tracts of but it's a super arid semi-desert landscape and, and you just don't have the variety in wild Namibia as you do in uh, South Africa. So, um, yeah, it, it was just, uh, the experience was just so cool. I mean, when you, when you think about animals like a, a greater kudu and arguably one of the most beautiful animals in the world, I mean, just a spectacular dove gray colored with white stripes and a, chevron on their forehead and twisting spiral antlers like a markhor and they are just absolutely magical to watch in the wild and to be able to hunt that I, i've dreamed of hunting one of those since i was a young man and it ended up being my wife that was the one behind the trigger for the kudu not me so that's why i'm going back uh this coming <laughs> go hunt my own kudu so but you know see, seeing animals that you've known about your whole life and seeing them out in the wild and I remember at one point we were driving across this big open, uh, it was basically kind of like a big pasture um, in between brushy hills and probably two miles long, half a mile wide. And as we drove into it, some of the animals spooked. And at one point, you know, we're watching 300 animals of 10 or 11 different species running 
across this thing and it was just like a scene from jurassic park with the you know all the dinosaurs running when they they go inside the park there and it was, it was just really really cool I've, I've never seen anything like it so um, well it's great it's, experience yeah it's fascinating to someone like me you know who grew up probably has grown up probably about like you did you know hunting the west some form or fashion and you know i i i can take off into the <clears throat> excuse me i can take off into the backcountry completely by myself um you know at this point even into grizzly country and and not that i'm not a little concerned or scared so to speak but i feel pretty comfortable in my skin you know and 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 then think and then transition to something like that that you know on paper shouldn't be that big of a you know it shouldn't be as frightening or as concerning and yet i mean it you know it's like geez i i feel like you just have your head on a swivel the whole time there you know just always looking over your head or over your shoulder because there's just there's a lot worse things even than grizzly bears honestly you know oh yeah well there's no doubt um we uh we went to Kruger National Park right after uh, our hunt for three days. Mm-hmm. And the first day in Kruger, we drove down. Um, in Kruger, you can drive your own vehicle, but you cannot get out of it. And so, <laughs> but there's also some little spur roads off the pavement you can take. And so we took this road with our, our friend Jan Dumont down towards uh, a river bottom area and didn't really see much there, but turned around, came back. And all of a sudden, there's a, a young bull elephant that comes blowing out of the brush trumpeting and, and kind of doing a bluff charge towards us and I'm, I'm just like this is just <laughs> this got real all of a sudden and uh you know Jan just laughed and kept driving but you know it certainly got my attention and uh it, it's just yeah until you actually experience something like something like that and you know we're in a car we're relatively safe but it's still it's real <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. Huh. yeah that's that's cool man i was <clears throat> I was actually scheduled. We have a little uh, partnership we do with some guys in South Africa through my my job. And last year, we thought the border, you know, everything was going to open up about, you know, the end of 2020 or whatever it would have been. And so we were all booked up to go in 21 and um, had plane tickets and everything. And, you know, it kind of fell through, right? First part of 2021, everything flared back up and everything got shut down for us. But um, yeah, I was, I was this close and, you know, I don't know how it'll go in the future. I'm, I'm sure if I'm here long enough, I'll get to go back. And it's, it's one of those things that, um, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't dream about it. Like I have or did, um, Alaska. Right. And I haven't been to Alaska either. Um, but it's, it's still, I have a healthy respect for it and for guys who go and because I, you know, even though I've never been there, I, I feel like I understand, um, you know, the magnitude of how, how big and grand it is. So. so I'll say this. Most people that go are already thinking about and planning their next trip on the way <laughs> That's home. what they say. As soon as you go yeah. once, you just can't wait yeah. to get back. Well, yeah. And so what does that say about it? Yeah. It's just an incredible experience. And, you know, some of the country is not that captivating. It's, you know, arid, scrubby, brushy. It doesn't matter. It's like, the knowing what's out there is what's cool is, yeah. you know, you never know what's around the next corner. You know, the animals are just absolutely spectacular. And, uh, un- until you experience it firsthand, you really can't explain to somebody how cool it is. And yeah. unless they have, you know, they've 
growing up reading stories and that kind of thing and spark the imagination that way. So, so yeah, yeah, highly recommend it and don't discount South Africa. It's, you know, you probably should read uh, the article I wrote in Western Hunter and I go over a lot of the issues and, and the pros and cons of uh, South Africa versus other places, but the affordability, I mean, right now there's packages in South Africa, Gemsbok, Blue Wildebeest, Springbok, and maybe one other animal for like 3,200 bucks for, for the hunt for six days. And that includes your lodging and food. And, and these places you stay in, most of them are just spectacular. I mean, if you took the average place in South Africa and put it in Alaska, it would be one of the top resorts in the entire state of Alaska. Cause there's, there's just some junk up there in Alaska. You know, it's a different, a different kind of thing. They don't have to spend money to compete. They, they have a pretty limited uh, amount of uh, places to go. And some of them just really aren't that, that nice, but places in South Africa, they're, borderline luxury on every place you you stay in it's it's a special experience and the food is fantastic they feed you wild game and you know there's almost everything down there is great to eat so um we we really enjoyed the whole experience evenings around the campfire and and the barbecue they they call it a bra but um yeah it's it was just it wasn't just the hunting it was the experience the people in south africa are, are fantastic they're really uh, great hosts and and interested in us being there and great conversation we had in the evenings and you get to hear a lot of their experiences of what they're dealing with from politics and the evolution or de devolving aspect of South Africa the country itself yeah. it's yeah. so if you have any interest you should go yeah you mentioned the people um and just our our good friends through work you know that again i've never personally been over there but we're always um it's always at trade shows right they come over and they have their booth and and they're we're really good partners and so you know every trade show that we're both at they'll one of us will hook up and pay for dinner you know so we we've spent quite a bit of time at this point i have with these guys but I, I've never even been over there hunting, and I feel like these guys are just like my brothers. You know, these guys—they're—they're right. they're so they really are. They're so um, friendly and so personable, and and you can tell they just—they believe in doing what's right, and they—they're no BS, and like they would just fit in perfectly, you know, with guys like us here in the states. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I. We we went to four different places. It was kind of ours was a little interesting because uh, our outfitters uh, ranch. Um, the staff caught COVID right before they got there. So the South African government locked his gates, posted a guard at the gate to keep anybody from going in or out of the wow. ranch. And he basically had to subcontract um, us going to different uh, ranches to do our hunt. And uh, so, which was, you know, a little annoying other than the fact that um, we got to visit four different places and got to meet four different groups of really cool people and see four different landscapes. And and it ended up being a, probably a much more uh, fulfilling experience than staying at one place. So um, that that was a, you know, unintended consequences of an unfortunate event of his his staff getting COVID right before we got well, I will make sure and uh, tag that link that article in the show notes if I'm smart enough to do that. I've yeah. never actually never actually linked an article in the show notes. We're yeah, I'll have to talk to uh, Chris Denham at Western Hunter Magazine see if he can get it up on the on the website to uh, to link to. So okay, um, but yeah, it's a 
It was in uh, I don't know, issue that came out late summer, I believe. I got you. Hard hard copy deal. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So well, I don't think it's online yet, but we'll we'll see if we can make that happen. Yeah. Well, I I wonder, um, you know, where does your where did your love or your um, interest in South Africa start relative to your Western big game? I mean, was it you know, were you like me and you just kind of had your head down chasing mule deer growing up and then it was something that, you know, just happened later in life or was it, you know, how, how does that relate to your Western big game hunting? Honestly, it was uh, being a kid in high school, going to the library and, and uh, reading Outdoor Life and Peter Capstick stories. That, that, were that early? Out in Outdoor Life in the 80s. That really got me fired up for uh, going to Africa someday. So I ended up buying quite a few of his books and have read and reread them many times and and uh read Hemingway's Green Hills of Africa and and uh so yeah it's it's definitely through reading that got me most fired up about it so but you know I, I'm a hunter I, I like to go do adventures all over the planet if, if I had the budget but uh South Africa is definitely as far as a hunting international hunting experience it's the most affordable thing you could do i mean you can't for what you can do in south africa you can't hardly do anything in north america at that same price so there is other costs involved obviously getting the stuff home and air airfare and that kind of thing but you know relative to the experience you get i think it's i still think it's a bargain yeah what uh relative to the states what's your what's your is it mule deer is that your still your absolute favorite thing to chase here in the states oh i wouldn't say that at this point i mean i've I've branched out and it's a good thing mule deer aren't my favorite anymore because it's becoming really tough um you know it's i'm i'm very pessimistic about colorado mule deer at this point but you know part of it is because it's gotten so bad in my backyard um, there's still places in the state that are decent, but relative to what it was, uh, you know, 15 years ago, it's pretty bad right now. And, you know, for instance, the area where I live, uh, just, I live in Silverthorne now, but, uh, north of where I'm at is the Kremlin area and Middle Park. And, and I would say as little as five, six years ago, you could drive around the winter range and see couple dozen 180 plus bucks in a day and i think you'd have trouble finding one today and uh they give out a lot of tags and and there's a lot of people going there thinking uh things are going to be different than they are and uh, they're just not there there's it's it's a completely different landscape for mule deer in a lot of places in uh, central and northwestern colorado and much of it has to do with the tag allocations relative to CWD and, and the management philosophy that's been adopted by CPW in many of these units in in uh, trying to curtail the spread of CWD. Yeah, and elaborate on that um, because it's it's a very you know it's an interesting um, strategy or whatever you want to call it that they're that they're employing, right? I mean, they've, you know, maybe, maybe break it down relative to this five-year season structure, the date structure that we just, just ended, right? Am I right? Or is it, or we just, Uh, we we just, we're, we're year one into, or we just ended year one of the five-year season structure, the new season structure that's been adopted. And 
that was discussed last year, but uh, uh, Reader's Digest of some of the management of the CWD units is, um, I, I think, long story short, is there's a, a theory that uh, mature bucks wander from doe group to doe group in the rut and to breed, and they are much more likely to contract and pass along CWD than younger bucks who might not wander as much. So the idea of uh, hitting the mature bucks with more tags and knocking them down and then assuming that uh, younger bucks, one and two-year-olds, will do the breeding and they'll stay with the doe groups um, is, is I think, uh, that's probably a, a short simple answer to that but it's probably the best i could say right now and that would explain and, pushing the dates so far back into the rut right because those well no no that's a completely different thing there okay so the, the idea behind the dates was there was two things one was a uh, hunter pressure and to try to create a more quality experience and the other was to uh, have implement a settling down effect in between seasons for the for the animals so each opening day would have, uh, in theory, a week of rest in between the seasons where the animals would get back to their normal behavior um, and provide a more quality hunting experience. So, But isn't that just counterintuitive by pushing the dates back? Because, I mean, it just makes them more vulnerable. And, I mean, that, you, well, you know what I mean? like Pushing the dates back, and then you... Um, you have to compensate that with, with the increased vulnerability of the onset of that and bucks. And so in, in essence, you're decreasing uh, opportunity because you have to limit the tag numbers and you're also going to put more pressure on mature deer. So, um, yeah, there's some counterintuitive things that are going on, um, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, with the new season structure that was adopted, those are more geared towards hunter satisfaction, I believe, than anything uh, to do with biology and, and buck numbers and that kind of thing. So the, those impacts uh, and these these uh, season dates were, I guess, uh, based on survey that was done by CPW and by the new Wildlife Commission that was um, appointed by Governor Polis, and so. There's Do your the new wildlife commission yeah. is, is represented more of uh, it's a different management group that's what's been used in the past. Like you had a lot of hunting and ag interests on the on the wildlife commission before, and now you have people representing you know all aspects of what uh, I guess the gov the governor wants to see representing. So people from Boulder, non hunters. Um, that kind of thing. So you're going to get a different uh, management and mentality from those people than you would with a ag and hunting based wildlife commission. So. You know, it just makes me laugh. Cause when, when do people, you know, like say someone like us, right. Get to go and, and help um, someone in a big city, for example, who doesn't hunt, manage their policies. <laughs> yeah. <That's> a, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not a two way street, is it? <laughs> No, no, and I understand the wildlife is, you know, belongs to everybody, but uh, we're the ones that pay the bills. We're pretty protective of that because of that reason, yeah, you know. Yeah, and I think I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think, by and large, I think most sportsmen are very well intentioned in 
conservation and wildlife, but um, there is the nobody wants to give up anything either. Yeah. So um, that's really kind of a side note to really what we're talking about, and that is the management philosophy being implemented by the newer wildlife commission and how it how it impacts mule deer mule deer management numbers and all the above but uh yeah i I heard recently that the gutteson basin uh they're they're supposed to be increasing tag numbers for bucks there and and the locals are very concerned about that guys i know that uh, think the quality is marginal at this point and increased tag numbers are really going to drop the quality of hunting for those units in the Gunnison Basin, which are, it's kind of, uh, you know, if you're looking at quality units to draw in Colorado, those, those are probably on the, the upper 25% of all draw units in the state would be those units like 54, 55, uh, you know, the, I think it's 66 and 67, 551, something like that. So, um, yeah, that, that could be, pretty seriously impacted in a couple of years if we up the tag numbers and uh how it's going to be impacted but you know a single season with the right snowfall and the right conditions you know they could have some serious impact on mature deer in those units so well and you know if we've learned nothing it's just history will repeat itself in other words it's only a matter of time you know until the stars all align so to speak and the you know, that, that bad winter just comes and demolishes anything that's left. Um, you know, and, and even Colorado being the deer factory that it is, um, you know, there's, you can't, you can't out manage mother nature, you know, when she decides to, to lay it down. Um, I, I think we've proved one thing, uh, is, is that, that hunter, um, Hunter pressure on mule deer is the single biggest limiting factor for for bucks in a herd. And uh, it's quite evident that everywhere you implement a fairly conservative management strategy by tag allocations, that you start having quality deer within two to three years. And if if you have too many tags, that quality goes away no matter how good the genetic potential or or the escape habitat or anything else is we we are just too efficient at killing mule deer because when they're in in any sort of numbers on on the more mature deer they're you know people are going to get them one way or the other whether it's skill or luck or anything you you just can't have that many people out there putting pressure on mule deer you can overhunt them pretty easily and so i that's that's what's going on in colorado right now and it's not just in certain locations, it's all over. And, and there's places where deer numbers are down, plus hunting pressure is up. And, you know, some of the uh, little more legendary units like 35, 36 in Eagle County are just absolutely smoked right now. And I know locals that have drawn four season tags that um, trying to dig up a good buck. And, you know, if you've got a pile of points and you're thinking about burning them on those kind of hunts, you you probably ought to see how many uh, Boone and Crockett deer have been entered out of those units in the last three or four years. And uh, it's way different than it was 15 years ago. So um, a lot of people are are still relying on information that is, you know, 12 to 15 years old, and it's just not the same. 
So yeah, it kind of it kind of reminds me of when I drew that uh, New Mexico two uh, B tag, you know, yeah. and and it was it was five six seven years ago or whatever it's even been now, but at the time it was just we were just at the the wave had just crashed on the times when that was a two hundred inch buck hunt, you know. And, but it was long gone in the rear view mirror. And that's why I applied. Cause I had heard and man, I got down there and had a rude awakening and not that there's not some 200 inch deer down there. And, you know, it just didn't work for me, but, um, kind of, you know, kind of the same thing. I mean, some of these, these world famous, so to speak, Colorado units, um, man, you better have realistic expectations, I think. Yeah. Uh, because it's yeah. just not like it was back in the heyday, you know, the 03, 04, or whatever it was, 05. Right. You know, like Unit 44, I, I, it's probably the uh, most highly touted unit in the state for big deer. Well, the population is probably a third of what it was 20 years ago. Um, you know, there's a lot of tags in the second season, but it's a very difficult hunt without weather. And, uh, I've never seen a place where mule deer were more timber bound until the snow gets deep and the rut kicks on than 44. And, uh, it's a very tough hunt in the second season, but there's, you know, I think, I believe there's 80 something tags or something recently last couple of years in that second season and maybe 15 or so for the third and four seasons. But yeah, it's a super tough hunt and, and deer numbers will surprise you. They're not what, and so if that's the best we have, uh, that's a little concerning too. Yeah. Um, because I, I feel like, uh, guys dropping 25 preference points on that hunt have expectations and, you know, that most likely they're going to kill a, you know, a 170 to 180 class deer if they can hold out a little bit. Uh, but the idea of killing a, a 200 inch deer is, I don't want to say it's a pipe dream, but it's not a realistic expectation. If you, I've been sitting on points for years and you don't have much as far as local knowledge in the unit and you don't get any snow. So, so, you know, there's nothing is guaranteed. Absolutely nothing in Colorado. Well, and the, the biggest misconception that's been created, I think from, you know, whatever, right. Some of it's these filtering, uh, features on websites and platforms that we have now, some of it's stuff that's been around forever. The Eastman's, the, you know, the epics and stuff, they have to put, they have to put a general number on a tag or a unit or a hunt, right? This is, you can expect to see 170 bucks or 190 or whatever, but, but that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions. I think, would you agree that points equals, you know, an easier hunt for a bigger, whatever buck bull antelope or whatever. Yeah, and keep in mind those uh, those Boone and Crockett scores are based on a assumed age class of a deer harvested. So, you know, when you're talking about uh, a 180 class deer, you're talking like, well, maybe you can kill a four or five year old buck in a in a place with good genetic potential. And uh, you know, 200 inch class is basically you know seven eight year old deer is is the assumption that it's managed so well that you have a reasonable chance of running into that older, really mature animal. You know, when you start get dropping down into, you know, the, this Boone and Crockett score recommendation saying like 160 class deer, it means that, you know, you probably ought to be thinking about bringing home a, a two or three year old buck, right. in my opinion. I th- and I think that's a, it's a little more fair way of addressing it 
than a, simply a Boone and Crockett score reference. But you know, there you have to reference it in in some way. So yeah. uh, whether it's uh, a ten point differential in Boone or a year of age, it's uh, it's broken down that way. So you got to be able to filter that in your mind also. And uh, you know, I, I think at this point. You know, if, if you're hunt, you're wanting a quality buck and you're hunting for a mature deer, you, you probably should not rely too much on score. And if you see a, you know, a 28 inch big back fork deer with small fronts, that might be the best deer you see. So if you choose to pass that kind of buck up, you're probably going home without. Because yeah. there's just not a lot of mature deer in the landscape in this day and age. Yeah. Well, some places there are, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not trying to poo-poo the whole state and there's an element of private land that, it, that uh, plays into this. And it's not uh, so much a, as like outfitted and hunted private land, but there are private land sanctuaries with wealthy landowners that have very limited hunting pressure. And so those kind of you know, places in uh, Pitkin County around Aspen and Carbondale and some of that stuff, there's, there's some huge deer in that Valley for that, for those reasons is that you've got these large private ranches with deer getting big and old. So, you know, those kind of, those kind of factors, uh, I mean, that's not something you, you can depend on. I mean, you know, sitting a fence line and hoping something jumps the fence either. So, um, yeah, the, the more that I've matured in my, whatever you want to call it, my quest of hunting anything in the West, the more you come to realize, um, for better or for worse, private land plays a, a big role when especially when you're talking higher age class animals you know yeah it, it provides a sanctuary right. in, a, in a pressure limiting situation and what i was talking about as far as the biggest impact we have is, is hunter numbers and harvest and so when you have a, an artificial limiter such as private land you you can increase buck to doe ratios and, and also age class simply by having a large tract of private land within a unit that is managed for a pretty aggressive harvest so you know and, and not all those deer stay on that land 100 percent of the time so you, you have movement and that kind of thing so you know th those are and there is a lot of private land in colorado in certain places and, and much and there's units that are just really heavy uh uh, public land too so um you know that that mix there is helpful to uh make sure that we've got some quality deer in certain places so <clears throat> let's talk tactics for a minute um specifically relevant to to colorado deer right let's say that a guy because i i feel like <clears throat> excuse me there's just this interesting storm building relative to you know specifically colorado with bonus points and this this huge point creep and the fact that you know we kind of all feel that that quality just you know slipping like we're talking right um, yeah and so you have the two schools of thought right you have guys who have x number of points let's say 10 or more and then you have guys like me who have been pretty dang diligent about burning or going on a hunt every year or two. Um, what do you generally speaking, what is the play if you're after a mature buck? Is it get the 10, 15, 20 points and pray for it? Or is it somewhere in the middle? Is it go hunt as often as you can on these zero one point units? 
Uh, yes, absolutely. So the idea of stockpiling points does not make sense with the current management strategy in the state. You also, we have shorter seasons now with this new season structure. So the idea of, uh, you get, you know, there has to be an honest acceptance that there's going to be some luck that plays into success. It used to be where you had, you know, your tools in the toolbox and you did the right things and hunt hard and you could be rewarded. But you can also do that now and and get your ass handed to you because you're relying on trying to find an animal that is pretty limited in number in a big expanse of, of country. And so, you know, th there's just some luck involved in being on the same mountain as a big deer at the same time. The same canyon, the same hillside, that kind of thing. So, you know, understanding that you have a really short season and and that it's going to take a fair amount of luck, um, the more days you spend in the field, the higher of a chance you have in, in running into something. So that means hunting more, more seasons and spending more time uh, getting that inside information that uh, locals might have as far as trying to hunt the same unit. And, and putting your time in that way where it might not be as quality of a unit, but it's something you, you can get a tag for every year or two. And in the years that you can't get a deer tag, you should probably go there and get an over-the-counter elk tag yeah. and hunt and, and get that knowledge. And that's really the play in my mind at this point. And, you know, alternative seasons such as uh, archery and muzzleloader, archery becomes somewhat of a zoo, but still it's less peaceful less people out there on the mountain than uh, rifle season. So I was just, <clears throat> that was my next question is let's assume that a guy is, you know, deadly enough with all three weapon choices. Um, where does a guy do the, the most damage, so to speak in Colorado nowadays? Um, you know, is it four season hunt on a crap unit because the dates might be better? Is it early season high country with a bow, even though the success percentage is much lower muzzle loader where do you like um just generally for colorado uh archery is definitely the the best season for trying to get a quality animal and if you have the time to invest into it and you get tags easier you can learn it and you know the deer are in their routines they're they're somewhat predictable a lot of these bucks do the same thing every day um but it is becoming more challenging and, and it's not just increased hunter pressure and increase in the type of hunter who's willing to put in more effort. You also have an incredible amount of recreators coming to Colorado now, and they're effectively displacing deer in a lot of high country locations. And if you, you could take any place that's got like a destination lake in a backpacking type area, and it's just like loaded up with people every weekend and and sometimes all weekdays in the summer, there's just, and so when you have that kind of situation where you got literally dozens and dozens of people pounding these basins, you're just not going to have old bucks in them. So you eliminate a lot of countries simply because of the increase in recreating traffic um, in the high country these days. So, you know, you got to be a little more creative and in, in trying to find a place. And, and, but I will say that if I had a choice of uh, where I think, a guy could be the most uh, deadly. It's it's definitely the archery season if you have the skill set and the ability and all that kind of thing because I think you have the most opportunity there. Um, the days, 
you know, the four season hunts are only five days. So you get a snowstorm in the middle of a, a four season hunt and all of a sudden your five day hunts down to three or four. And it's a huge amount of pressure for those type of hunts. You, you know, you burn 20 plus points on a four season hunt and you could just feel, you know, a ticking in the back of your mind, just that, that clock, just, you know, the sands in the hourglass, the, the clock ticking and, and all that. It's, it's, uh, I've been with a guy that had a great four season tag and it was like, well, okay, well, this morning's hunt, there's 10% of the hunt's gone. Now the day's gone. Now 20% of the hunt's gone. And by the third day, it's like in the morning, the third day, the, after that morning hunt, the hunt's 50% gone. And it's like, you feel like you're just getting into it at that point. So that's the same. I know exactly that feeling. That's the New Mexico structure, right? That late two B tag. I mean, it's five, it's five days. You better, you better hit the ground, uh, full speed, so to speak, uh, scouting, you know, have a guide or something. Um, because like you said, if anything goes wrong, I mean, in our case, it was no weather and just bucks were you know, big bucks had not moved into the country and the, the resident deer, I wasn't smart enough to find the resident deer who did hang out there, but yeah, that's a, that's a constricting feeling. You feel like you're just getting just, I mean, man, and that took me zero points. You know, it was a, it was a good tag. So, so to speak in New Mexico, but yeah, yeah. I, I can't imagine, you know, 20, 25 points that some of these guys put into those hunts. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you get, uh, like this year's third season, you know, you had great dates. A lot of, a lot of people were super excited, burn their points and, you know, think they're getting a, a hunt in the onset of the rut and that kind of thing. And you end up having a week of t-shirt weather. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is a really disappointing thing, but it's the reality of, you know, our, the, the weather patterns. We, we seem to have a lot more t-shirt weather third seasons and snowy ones the last decade. So it's just, the reality of how things are so you know these short seasons are really it's, it's a big handicap for a guy that wants to kill big deer yeah it's, it's just it's something you got to keep in mind so you should not be learning an area during the season if it's a five or seven day season you should have your shit together and hit the ground running like you said so yeah well you know, and you you made a very you made a very good uh you know kind of pro tip there so to speak when you mentioned on years that you don't have a tag, um, you know, you pick up the over the counter elk tag and go be in the unit and be around it, you know, and, and, and if you're a diehard mule deer, mule deer guy, you don't like hearing that you want to be out hunting mule deer. Trust me. I, I, you would have to, I don't know what you'd have to do to get me to go on some spike elk hunt or over the counter elk hunt, you know, when I'm not, when I could be hunting mule deer somewhere else, so to speak. But, um, it's also probably why I don't consistently kill big bucks, Yeah, <laughs> you know, is because I don't dedicate myself to it, even in a way that doesn't even seem, you know, logical is saying, Hey, one year, and I know I'm going to draw this tag. And so let's just go be in the unit. It's, it's one of the things, you know, I've mentioned this in the last few episodes with next level guys like you and Robbie and, uh, you know, uh, um, Duggar, and, you know, I've had guys like Carter and Mark Smith and all these guys, like you guys are in it um, every single year, regardless of your situation, you're willing to, to 
you know, not hunt somewhere else to be in a unit and almost pre-scout a, a whole year in advance. Um, it's, yeah. a, it's a very, very underrated uh, tactic that I've picked up from a lot of you next level guys. Yeah, well, in full disclosure, I don't hunt places I used to hunt um, because the deer aren't there. And so, you know, it's I'm still trying to reset where I want to go. I'm retiring from the fire department this year and moving to a different area of the state. And I, I'm looking forward to it as a new area to explore and, and, you know, see if I can crack the nut on some of these big deer that are down in this country. Because the stuff I've hunted for years does not have them anymore. Um, so, you know, it's basically, uh, I'm, I'm doing a bit of a reset at this point. And, you know, one thing, uh, you just can't, you can't plan. For, you, you could try to make your own luck, but there's still an element of luck in some of this stuff. And, you know, I, I know Robbie has gone without deer and, you know, I've, I've eaten tag soup more years than I can care to remember recently but you know I, i've set standards for the type of animal i'm going to kill and and unless i'm i'm going to take that kind of buck i'm i'm not going to shoot a two or three year old buck just to say i got one and put them on the gram and and take that <laughs> you know wide angle photo to try to make them look better it's just, that's that's freaking bull man because you guys want big bucks but you can't pass up the little ones it's like i don't feel sorry for you yeah Shot, yeah. shots fired on the uh, want to be the, 50 it, years old with a house full of little bucks um, <laughs> keep shooting those little bucks but if you want i mean you kill one one really big deer and it makes it's better than killing 20 little ones i can tell you that right now and i don't buy that hunting for meat bull because you shoot one cow elk and that's there's four meal deer so um yeah, yeah. I've, I've known one, one guy in my life. Um, and it's, it's a guy I work with here at work. And I, I think I've mentioned this once before, but I've met one guy who I would honestly say is a purebred meat hunter. And I can say that because it doesn't matter what tag he has. The first thing that's legal, he shoots every single time. He even drew a limp, like what we would call limited entry tag here in Wyoming. That's kind of early high country rifle deer hunt. And he couldn't do it. He, he couldn't do it. The first, he won't even show us a picture because he knows that like, I'll be disappointed in him because of the tag and what he killed, you know, and not really, but, but that's, that's what kind of guy he is, is he, he cares so much about just killing, just meat hunting that he literally is willing to like shoot something and not show me a picture, if that makes sense. Like, and, but he's the only one, he's the only one. Fine. I I don't, I'm not telling people what they can and can't do. Well, I'm, I'm, if you want to kill a big deer and you keep shooting little ones, then you've got the problem. Well, and that's, and that's, and that's my point is, is I, you're absolutely right. Because 99.9% of guys who claim to be meat hunters are just bad hunters. Right. Or they, they aren't, aren't disciplined or they don't have the, you know, they, they can't hold out or they won't, or they, you know, they just have that fear or they care what people think too much. Or... Well, there are some that say they're a meat hunter. And I think it's an excuse because for obvious reasons, but they're still going to shoot that big buck. If they see it, they're not going to pass up that big buck in order to, to shoot a doe or a small buck. So that kind of begs some questions right there. If, if that's what you're going to do. So, 
you know, you can call yourself a meat hunter, but if you're going to blast a big deer when you see it, um, you know, granted a big deer has got a lot more meat on it too, but, um, the quality isn't there. I mean, I've, I've eaten enough of them. It's like, you get them <laughs> the, the big ones later on in the year in the rut. And I don't care who you, you think you're going to make steaks off a mid November buck, uh, more power to you, man. <laughs> How many wide angle fisheye lenses do you actually own, Mike? I got to know. I got one. It's on my iPhone. <laughs> yeah, just because it came with the phone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shoot. I went down that road, man. We we have a running joke. Me and my brother, you know, we were sitting up on the hill once, and this was years. This is probably 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And we're like looking at this buck and you know, I knew that I didn't want to shoot him, but I, I kind of leaned over to my brother. I'm like, he's like, you going to shoot that deer? I'm like, I don't think so. How big do you think he is? He's like, I don't, he's only probably 155 inch deer or something. And, and then just perfect timing. Some, I, I said, well, how big do you think we could make him look? <laughs> and he kind of looked at me and smirked and we were just joking about it, but it was like, well, it'll probably make him look, you know, if 155, we could make him look 170. Ah, might as well go kill him then. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's difficult not to do that with an iPhone just because of the perspective the lens gives you. Yeah. So, you know, what you have to do basically is stand back further than you would think and zoom in on it as opposed to being at the normal distance where you take a photo with a, right. a DSLR or even some of the point and shoots. It, you know, the, the phones are, are so good that, you know, a lot of us don't want to carry cameras anymore just to save some weight but then you're dealing with a perspective issue on the iphone so you know like uh, you know there's some running jokes like long arm in it and but that that's really nobody's doing anything different it's it's the iphone it's just the perspective of being at a you know getting that in the frame all of a sudden the deer is really wide and, and you're there further and it looks like you're holding it out just to make it look bigger but um, so there is that. I mean, that's that is that's a real issue. Unless you're taking photos with a normal camera, it's it's going to give you that skewed perspective. So, yeah. not a pro- not a problem. We that. yeah, not a problem we had way back when you know when I started, and and definitely back in your day, I'm sure of the you know the 35 mil. Uh, you know, that's what we hunted with. You know, as y'all, my dad always had one or two of those disposables in his saddlebags on his horse, and you you know you'd get on the mountain and kill something and mom wanted pictures and so you know we were it wasn't a production like it is now where you have to you know it wasn't going to the world though i guess um so we didn't care if there was blood or tongue hanging out or you know you could see the wound but you just you'd snap this picture you know you'd you'd uh wind the thing up which frick man kids born in the what 2000s at this point if you're listening they don't even know what we're talking about. Um, I'm I'm that old now. I've crossed that threshold, Mike, where I can say something like that. But you know, you'd wind that stupid thing up, and then you just it didn't even sound like it took a picture. It was just like a like, <laughs> and then you get home and pray. You just go to Walmart and turn your pictures in, and three days later you'd go back and you just pray that there was one that looked decent. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Uh, what about fifty? years into the digital age i mean roughly for you know general consumer use so you know my the biggest buck i i've ever shot was in 2006 and 
I was still carrying around a 35 millimeter slide film camera there. <laughs> and I shot about 20 self-timer pictures right before dark. And out of those 20, only one came out good. <laughs> and if I had a digital iPhone in my hand, every single one of them. Every one of them. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. So man. Really, it's changed things a lot, the photography. Yeah. And, it, you know, there's some great stuff. You look guys with, you know, no photography skills can shoot a magazine cover with, uh, you know, the digital equipment that's available nowadays because it's just, you know, you just fire and yeah. keep throwing stuff at the wall and see what sticks. You know, <laughs> whereas when I shoot digital slide film, you bought a, you know, a roll of film, which was about six or seven bucks and you had 36 images on it. You sent it off and it was another, you know, five to seven bucks to get it developed. So, you, you know, for 36 photos, you're talking, you know, 12 bucks and you start thinking about every time you pull the trigger, when, you know, what you're taking a picture of. It's like it's losing, losing an arrow on the mountain and oh, you're yeah, like, oh, that was $30. Yeah. Well, I've got literally files and hundreds and hundreds of slides. And so, yeah, I've spent some money on slides and getting stuff processed, but uh, you should start posting up those old, uh, old, old school photos that you, I'm sure you have. Yeah, I need to. I just, could take time of yeah. i've got an app on my iphone now those i can throw it on my light box and and take a picture with my iphone of mm. the slide and supposedly it'll come out halfway decent so i got to start playing around with that because i got a lot of material well just sitting in. my one of my favorite things now to watch on on instagram is uh jeremy duggar you know him right down in new yeah. mexico uh, no, no of him i don't know no of him yeah i mean he's you know he's one of those guys that super flies under the radar but um he's been doing this <clears throat> this dump of you know and i talked to him about it on the podcast that we had and he mentions how he's just doing it for himself he he literally doesn't care it's just a digital place to store stuff you know that he's he's worried that all these old stuff's gonna deteriorate over time or whatever and so but man, it's been awesome. Uh, just all these old, you know, you can tell it's like you can hear the camera rolling those old uh, VHS type deals that we had or high eights or whatever. Um, uh -huh. And just, but man, it's so cool to, to see those old school stuff from guys like him or, you know, it'd be cool to see from guys like you just dumping some of that old footage that you have that, you know, you didn't think much of or don't think much of right now, but guys like me would really appreciate that. So. Yeah, it's just a matter of taking the time. <laughs> well, you're you're retiring, so well, we expect it. I guess time and motivation. <laughs> yeah, okay, there you go. So <laughs> when we started this, I just wanted to circle back to this because I asked you what if mule deer was your favorite animal to hunt yeah. in the West now, and you kind of said no, and then I made you <laughs> I made you talk about them for another thirty minutes. Anyway, what is your what's your favorite thing to hunt in North America right now? Uh if I could do anything every year, it would be uh, probably backpack doll sheep hunting in the North. Oh. And I think it's the greatest adventure in North America. So that would be my choice if I could, it's just too expensive and I'm not moving to Alaska. So, <laughs> um, yeah. still the only option for that is like you said, going, unless you know somebody or live there, um, you're going with an outfitter, right? For doll. Correct. Go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any of the bears too, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Elk hunting. I love elk hunting. Hunting 
for late season big bulls. I really, I really do look that until I kill one and then <laughs> carry it out and, and I hunt in stupid places. It's really hard to carry elk out of. So, yeah, you know, that's, there's that, but I, if I could hunt, I, I really miss hunting deer on a consistent basis. And, uh, I mean, I had so much fun and, you know, the, you know, the guys I hunted with and the camp camaraderie and, and just the whole thing was, it was just super times. And, and it's unfortunate that, you know, things have changed so much where you can't do it in the places you used to every year. And, uh, the quality has gone down that, you know, I really don't feel like I can, you know, consistently kill a big deer in Colorado simply by relying on skill. I feel like there has to be some, you know, luck involved that's beyond, you know, the cliche of making your own luck. I mean, it's, it's just, there's a little more to it than that, but, but, you know, if saying that, I would also say that if you're hunting archery and you can put in the time and effort and scouting and patterning and all that, you can do pretty well. But yeah, yeah I, I just like hunting the, you know, the big gray bucks and the, the later seasons too. So there's do that you, appeal. To me. Do you, um, do you apply in other States, any other Western States? Yeah, I'm, I've got points in Wyoming and Arizona, and uh, I haven't gone to Wyoming in you know, a few years and and haven't drawn in Arizona. So yeah. um, that's about all I do at this point. I, I really was put off by a lot of the, you know, just how expensive it got to apply in a lot of places. And, you know, Idaho's facing a lot of the same issues Colorado does with overhunting and too many tags and you know, I think they got they've got as great a potential as Colorado to produce a big deer if they could limp their hunting pressure. But it doesn't seem like a, it seems like you know these state agencies are starving for money and and uh, they just want to do everything they can to maximize. And what's crazy is that there's probably a, plenty of hunters that would pay two, three, four times as much for a deer tag if they knew they could have the experience higher quality and, and more limited hunting pressure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm that guy. Um, you know, it, it's almost immaterial, right? The cost is almost immaterial. If, if, you know, comma, if it was like, I think it should be, if I'm paying that kind of money, you know, kind of almost quasi like going and hunting private land. Right. And that's, that's why you see, it turning into that kind of a game, right. And, and people scoff at it and I scoff at it, right. Like turning into a rich man's game. But on the other hand, you almost can't blame guys, you know, especially guys that have the money. Right. I mean, no. it's like what the, the state agencies and the, and the other hunters, you know, ironically, the, the average Joe or whoever you want to call him that, um, or average Jane that's out there hunting, they, they've kind of dug that grave themselves by, forcing the state you know i i feel like kind of forcing the state's hand to push all these tags out and you know they want opportunity and they want this and they want that and um and that just it just suffocates that whole feel like we've been you know the whole theme of this that we've been talking for the last few few minutes here um and so it forces the hand of guys who have the money of like man i'll just i'll just go hunt private right i mean or i'll go buy a place or whatever right that um, if they have the money and yeah, I mean, can't say that I, you know, I wouldn't, I'm, I've made more money, you know, 
at this point in my life than than I ever have, which is, you know, it's pretty common, right? As you kind of get into a job and um, I would save up, you know, at this point, Mike, I don't know off the top, you know, off the cuff, but I mean, I would, I would save up a couple few thousand bucks, I think, um, you know, if it was like, Hey, I've got to apply in whatever Nevada, but it's going to be the most epic hunt. And I'm going to go, if you're going to hunt 200 inchers and you're going to have the mountain to yourself, so to speak. And, yeah. you know, it's going to be awesome. Like I, I would, like you said, I would pay three, four, five times, you know, what some of these out of state tags cost for that experience. I would. Yeah, I filled up my GMC truck with diesel uh, three days ago, and it was ninety six bucks, and a deer tag's forty. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, relatively speaking. I mean, nowadays yeah. with Biden, yeah, Biden's America, it's not even unreasonable, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, like this. <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't want to hear that. Uh, how am I supposed to take my son hunting if it's that expensive? It's like for like forty dollars. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to, obviously people have tight budgets, and, you know, I don't mean to make light of that kind of thing. You know, the, the price of resident tags is just ridiculously low. And, you know, there's, you can't get out past the fact that uh, demand far outweighs supply for mule deer in the West. And, you know, there's just, if you look at every state that requires applications, it's just, it's gone nuts. You know, the, yeah, but you know, I'll, 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 I'll disagree a little bit because guy, it's not that much money. Even the out of state tags, Mike, oh, it's no, like, no, I'm not, uh, I don't think it's that much money. I'm saying that, you know, there's so many people that want to hunt, that the amount of people that are looking to get a tag far outweighs the supply. So yeah. it can be a money issue. It's, this is just simply that it's a, a coveted experience and, and there's just two, more people than than the deer can handle. Yeah, put it that way. Well, but 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 again, going back to what you, you know, the 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 forty dollar, the guy that's crying about you know can't take his kid out or whatever. Like, yeah, that. But even even the out of state tags, like let's let's be honest, right? I mean, I don't know what median income is nowadays or whatever, but an out of state deer tag in whatever Idaho's what four hundred bucks or something like that. Um. I mean, these same people are buying stupid stuff, man. Like yeah. they've they're fully decked out in Sitka, probably, or you know they've got some well, nowadays sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollar truck, probably. You know, and it's just like, yeah, but no, I don't believe you, man. Like if you if you've got enough to, like you said, I mean, fill up your truck. You know, like there's ways there's ways to figure that kind of crap out, and people spend money and buy stupid stuff specifically just hunting. They, they spend money where they don't need to in order to, you know, almost, I think almost to have that excuse of like, Oh, I can't even, you know, these stupid States and they're, you know, they're non-resident rise raising price or whatever, but what's the non-resident bison tag in Wyoming, isn't it? Well, now that's, that's different. Yeah. It's like five grand, you know? Yeah. So you don't think somebody's willing to pay, even half that for a, a tag that's just a tremendous mule deer tag. And I mean, it's a freaking Buffalo, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I get that, you know, it's, it's a cool experience, cool animal and all, but it just shows you that people are willing to pay for special things. 
Yeah, and I don't I don't think either one of you and I I don't think what we're saying is that the whole entire every state across the West needs to, you know, limit tags so much that everyone has to pay five thousand dollars for a deer tag, but maybe in a couple certain units, right? To offset that. I mean, if it is just about the money, right, then I like where you're going because if it's just about the money, let's handpick, you know, ten percent of the units in each state and five times the price and drop the tags, cut the tags by, you know, divide them by five, right? All's well that ends well. It's the same, 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 right? And if you have guys that are willing to pay that, because, because you don't want, you know, nobody wants to price out the guys that want a $40 deer tag, right? But we're just talking about, you know, finding a happy medium because it's, it's, it's like all we do is, is, you know, anymore, it always, it rarely goes the way of the trophy hunter and you can use right. that word however the heck you want. I don't even care. Right. Like no, the, there's just disdain towards that. Sure. Hunter from state agencies too. They, yeah, they don't talking about it, hearing about it, hearing from them. And yeah. you know, I get that uh, a deer hunt for a young person is a great uh, way to break that barrier of entry into hunting. And it's a, a pretty easy, uh, you know, hunting a, a one-year-old two-point or small three or four-point deer or a doe that's a pretty easy task to to take a young person out you know for most people to have yeah. any sort of hunting skill at all i don't think it's a difficult thing to do but uh you know that that kind of uh experience is is valuable to bring people into the hunting uh world so you know you don't want to eliminate that kind of thing I, but i do feel like uh there's such an emphasis on that um, opportunity management style right. that, uh, you know, I just feel it's important to know that even if you're hunting a unit and you don't get one, knowing those big deer out there is, is a special part of the experience, you know, that the mystique. And, and it's pretty disheartening if you're hunting a place and you know they're not even there. It's like, yeah. that's what's what's the point, you know? So, yeah, care, careful what we ask for, you know, because right. eventually, if if like I said, if if every single time then one of these issues comes up, every single time we vote for a little bit more opportunity, a little bit more opportunity, a little bit more opportunity, well, that can't last forever, and yeah. you know, and, and eventually it's just gonna Colorado's gonna happen, you know, yeah. where it's just demolished and it's you know it's it it doesn't seem like there's it it'll never go back. Right. It's a slippery slope, they say. And it's like, you can't, it's almost, you know, you can't take tags away from people. They, they don't like that either. And so. Yeah. Anyway. And with the, with these increased tags for chronic wasting disease management, if, I don't know if you've talked to anybody that hunted public land up around Kremlin the last couple of years, but the t- they bumped the tags up a lot. And I've heard that, that people have had, described as the worst hunting experience of their life of of what the amount of hunting pressure that's out there on the public lands right now in some of these units it's just you know they're like i'm i'm never hunting here again i'm not coming back and so you have that too and and so some of us might hear that kind of statement like well good stay gone you know then there's less (laughs) but the problem is that the situation that's created to make them feel that way isn't changing is a red it's flag, yeah. To help us. Yeah. So, you know, these it's you know, there there's places that we won't see even if it, if you started right now, you wouldn't see 
them get better for a decade. I mean, it's really that far gone in my mind. It would take so much to recover some of these places to have quality hunting. But, yeah, as time will tell, we'll see where the pendulum swings in the future. But it's swinging the wrong way for guys that want to kill big deer right now. Well, even even the state of Wyoming, that hasn't changed much, right? I mean, real, really, it's just kind of been the same old, same old Wyoming. Um, yeah. You know, the non-resident tags in, you know, Region H and Region G are a few hundred, four, five, six hundred, depending on the unit. And then the residents all get their own tag uh, over the counter. Well, you know, it's not a popular opinion, but if I was in charge, like, I will admit, I... I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily change anything other than I would start limiting, you know, in Wyoming right now, you have where guys can go to any area of the state, you know, all over helter skelter, um, without really any accountability. There's no, you know, there's no studies, uh, there's volunteer, you know, voluntary, uh, volunteering studies, you know, where you, you can, if you want, but who knows, Mm -hmm. you know, and people don't and. So there, anyway, it's like you can be hunting the high country down low in September and then you can come, you know, to another area in October and hunt all through October. And then there's areas that go into November and you can cover all that, you know, with that one tag and, um, man, just, you know, anyway, everyone could have their, their cake and eat it too, I think. And, you know, just, you just gotta be careful because, you know, everywhere in the West is vulnerable, I think, um, you know, whether it's bad winters or drought or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, and so. Well, you know, I, I think uh, kind of going first full circle back to where I think where you wanted to go with uh, this podcast and Mule Deer and as far as recommendations that kind of along those lines and what what people could take away from this. And I think one of the most important things is, is somebody to have a long term plan and plan on investing in an area and getting to learn it. And, you know, it's going to, it might take you a, a few hunts, but, uh, if you, know, you, the idea if you didn't a, live in Colorado, would it be Colorado or would it, would, if you were just starting fresh, so to speak, anywhere in the West, where would you, I, I don't know if I could answer that because, you know, my bias is so heavy right for Colorado, but, uh, you know, I, I moved out here when I was, a young man specifically for deer hunting uh, i think it, right now if i was going to move anywhere and i wanted to hunt mule deer i would probably go to wyoming and don't, i just don't say that well, <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah i don't think you're gonna have a lot of people no they yeah. one so, one winner and then they take <laughs> yeah yeah so you know that that being said uh you know it's it's hard to say you know that's I'm talking revisionist history and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I think inside uh, knowledge, you know, trying to do too much. I just wrote an article for Western Hunter on trying to do too much. And if you're, you think you're going to go to four different states and, you know, try to kill big bucks in all of them, it's like, whoa, yeah, you're biting off a big chunk right there, dude. Um, I'd say tap the brakes and, and try, you know, try to go quality versus quantity on that thing. And, and when I say quality, it's, it's time, time kills big deer, uh, not luck. So being able to spend, uh, more days in the field and learn what, well, you know, even before season, just learning, uh, the unit 
because they're, every day you spend there, you're, you're creating a, a memory bank, a, a file of information in your head on, on what, you know, where to go, whatnot. So, you know, you're, you're doing uh, some process of elimination. You're learning things. You're becoming familiar. You know, deer do different things in different units. You know, units in Colorado that are 50 miles apart, the deer will de- do completely different things in the same type of habitat. They'll move out of high country early in some places. Other places they'll stay to 10,000 feet into November. Um, you know, deer in the book cliffs will drop off before there's even snow. They'll go down in some of the desert country outside of Grand Junction in some places. So, you know, that uh, local knowledge and, and inside information that way, I think, is so much more important than trying to hunt four states and hoping you get lucky in one of them. Yeah, so. if, you, if you think about it, you know, um, for me, it's it doesn't, you know, you you're spending one year hunting a unit, but you, it doesn't get you one year. It's like, it gets you three years. If you were to apply that to, you know, going around and jumping from unit to unit to unit, it would, you know, take you three or four of those hunts to get to where you're at, you know, with one, one year going back to the same unit, if that makes sense, you know, one year, isn't just one year. It's like, it's like three X, um, you know, the progress that you make when you get to go back the very next year and, you know, you know, right where a buck was, or, you know, now, you know, where that exit route is, or, you know, now you found that water hole and they hit that or whatever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was listening to, I did listen to your podcast with Jeremy last week when I was driving down to my place in Ridgeway. And I, I what I heard, uh, basically took from that is, you know, he knows his area and, he knows what to do in his area. And so, you know, he's got definitely got some skills to do that. But, um, you know, a lot of, of what he's doing is he's relying on the knowledge that he's gained from doing that in that area for a long time. And so, you know, he might not do, be able to do as well. You put him in another state and in another a different type of habitat. But, you know, he's going to do okay just because he's a good hunter and he's driven and and knows some things about animal behavior. But he's going to excel in what he knows best in his local knowledge. So, you know, which is which has just been compounding. You can just hear it in his voice. It's just compounding year after year after year. It's like it's like, you, you know, your retirement or investing in something that just compounds and then that interest starts compounding and then it you know, it's exponential, you know, and you can just, yeah. like you said, you can just pull it from his voice. I mean, he, he could draw you an X on a map right now of where a mule deer's bedded. I bet you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when, uh, you know, there's a tendency, I think for people to want a cookbook approach to, to finding big mule deer. And I get it that, you know, and that, that's kind of what, you know, like the book that David and I put together, there's, there's an element of that in there, but you know, you're basically, a lot of this stuff is eliminating variables. And then the rest of it is just uh, working hard and grinding. And then there's uh, the knowledge that kind of plays into it also. And so the more time you can spend in a certain place, gaining knowledge, and that that's what the assumption that there are the kind of deer on that mountain in that unit that you're wanting to hunt too. So, but, uh, you know, I don't, I think Jason Carter might've said this, that, you know, time kills big deer. Yeah. And, 
you know, there, there's so much uh, value in just that statement. It's like you have to invest the time and be patient. So, yeah. And if yeah. you're not, if you don't have the luxury of Carter where he can take off for an entire season or an entire summer or fall, then you have to do what you're saying and use your proximity to a unit, you know, where you can hit it on the weekend, 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 and then take a week long to hunt it or whatever. Right. And go back year after year after year. Yep. You you brought up you brought up looking you know having the size of deer that you're looking for in a unit and I just want to I'm just curious kind of as a closing like uh you know little fun little question here if you were if you had to say you know as a factual statement um you know talking from I25 west right in Colorado obviously just kind of the kind of what I consider the you know the Rocky Mountains there um, uh uh-huh. There is blank size of Boone and Crockett size mule deer in every one of those units. What would you, what would your answer have been 10, 15 years ago? And what's your answer today? Like if you had to put the bare minimum, so to speak. Oh, I'd say 80% of the units on the Western slope would have Boone and Crockett class mule deer and, uh, boy, I don't even know. It, you know, it's when I say that, I, I should say that you know, mature deer, and you know, they're they're very unrepre- underrepresented in a lot of units now. Mature deer are when I, I'm talking five five plus year old deer, and so you know, of all the you know five to seven year old deer, there's a certain percentage depending on the local genetic potential of different herds. Um, but basically when you're talking about you're hunting an age class of deer more than a score. So with that being said, there's just places that don't have the age class of what you're looking for. If you're looking for a big deer, so, or, or very few, very, very few. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's definitely not what it was. And, it, and I, I don't, I'm not trying to dissuade people, but, uh, I'd say, uh, have some realistic expectations and, and look, uh, look and see what, uh, Boone and Crockett entries are now from Colorado compared to what they were in 2004, five and six. Um, there's some real consistent themes there and now they're anomalous. So you have one from here, there, you know, just not every place produces them anymore. Well, Mike, I sure appreciate your time. Uh, I know it's it's getting late for you, and and it, it it wasn't all doom and gloom for me. All it all it is is, um, you know, it's a it's a little. These conversations are just sobering, and they're they're just a reminder from someone who, you know, has a a very good pulse on the area and the state. That you know, hey, if 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 an issue comes up, or we have a chance to go to some of these meetings where these decisions are made, or nowadays it's probably all online or whatever, but you know, you, 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 you take the 15 minutes and you log in and you send the email or you, you know, you get on and you voice your opinion or whatever, because, um, that's the only way that, you know, anything's going to change. Right. I mean, so yeah. I, I, I appreciate your, your perspective in other words, cause you, you know, you, uh, yeah, my, my uh, intent is not to, you know, try to poo poo it or dissuade people it's it's really to you know a bit of a reality check on where we're at and you know because you know it's funny is you know when the draw results come out and you see these people 
celebrating. I got my Colorado buck tag, Yahoo, all this. I'm like, well, you're sure excited. <laughs> you don't know what I know, but good for you. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love it. Yeah. Well, you're, uh, I want to give you credit, man. You're, you're one of the, one of the real ones. Uh, you guys is you and David's book. It was just, it was, you know, you can, you can just tell right off in the first couple chapters. I mean, it's just, you know, two guys that live, live and breathe it. And, uh, very good read. If anyone's, you know, hasn't read it, I, I can't think of the title off the top of my head. Um, the edge, the complete the edge. Guide to yeah, that's what it was. Complete guide to hunting mountain mulder. And, and it was a follow-up to David's first book. Is that right? Uh, I don't know. Am I remembering that right? I, I, I don't know if you could call it a follow-up, but it's a, uh, it's, well, it follows that. So, it follow, uh, follows that. Okay. Whatever yeah. the definition of follow-up. Yeah. He, like. he had a book and then you guys teamed yeah. up on this second one. Yep. And yes. Man, just, yeah. Very, very good, uh. Very good de- uh, book on mule deer. If you're yeah, into I that. think that you know, having two people's perspective on things and different, you know, David had uh, a, a focus on some early season high country bucks uh, because of his art. He started delving into archery, um, and did that quite a bit more. So there was there was some of that, and um, yeah, so uh, we cover a lot of stuff, and it, and it gives you some of these tools to put in your toolbox that uh you know what one of the most unique things about the place where we're at right now in this world is you know the information age and the internet and all the ability for people to kind of get this big file of information on how to do certain things and and we didn't have that when i was young we you know there was some stuff in outdoor life and whatnot but it, it definitely wasn't um to me, the kind of information on, on even a percentage level of what is available today to people that are just getting into it. It's like you start Googling stuff and, you know, there's information from all kinds of people and, and suggestions, tips. And, you know, whether you, I think, uh, Kenetrek puts out information, go hunt, uh, Kuyu, you know, everybody's got, it's the information age. There's, there's a lot available right now. So, People have a serious advantage. The equipment is just unreal what's available to us now. And, you know, things like uh, I think Onyx has really changed hunting in this world. It's probably been one of the most impactful tools that we've seen in the last decade. So you have all that going into it, but you still have to know a thing or two about animal behavior, what deer do and and what deer do in certain places and so that's that's your investment of time you know this this other stuff can be acquired but um with a relatively short order but you know you got to invest the time to learn about the animal itself and so for anybody interested uh westernhunter.net has our book for sale um it's western hunter magazine's website and it's the edge the complete guide to hunting mountain mule deer so i encourage you people to get copies while there's still some available because it won't be printed again yeah yeah for sure that's good to know yeah yeah absolutely so um that being said i I think uh you're gonna be down at the expo in a few days and uh, probably a lot of listeners will be down there i don't know if this will be out before then but 
Yeah, probably probably won't make it. Um, but yeah, I I love the expo, man. It's uh, I'm I'm not even going for work this year. I went to. Oh, you're not. No, I I went. Well, I I'm going, but I uh, you know, I I had been basically punched my clock enough that uh, on all the other trade shows that we do that this year that I got off the hook on that one, which is is kind of nice because I now I can just go. I I have to make a trip down anyway, just for personal stuff. I got to deliver some some llamas, of course. Um, pick up some llamas, but yeah, I'm just going to be there kind of on a Saturday, like I used to, you know, back in the day. And it's, it's, uh, it's like a, it's like a reunion, you know, it's like a high school class reunion going down yeah. there. It's just crazy. Stroller day. What's that? That's stroller day. Yeah. The stroller derby. Yep. <laughs> That's the young people show up with their six kids and stroller. <laughs> yeah, sir. Walk, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we'll probably miss that getting this one out in time for that. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, always a fun time to see some people there. So yeah, will you be there? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You seem you seem to fly under the radar for that type of stuff a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I just haven't haven't thought to look for you. But no, I don't. I'm six seven, so I usually <laughs> can't miss four. you. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mike, appreciate it. Looking forward to, uh, you know, wherever you land or end up hunting this fall. And, you know, just, uh, like I said, yeah, keep the, keep the, the muley content, even if it's not your favorite anymore, keep the muley content coming. You got oh, some incredible, yeah, you got some incredible pictures and stuff. I love looking at, so. Yeah. So I've got new country to explore down here in Ridgeway there you go. and we'll see what happens. So. Okay. Well, we'll uh, I'll link some of the stuff we talked and uh, and make sure people follow you on the Instagram, uh, Mike Duplan, right? I mean, it's just kind of your. It's that's it. It's that's pretty it. straightforward. Yeah, just like me. Just first, yeah, first and last name. So. Yep. No special cool guy name. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, have, right. have a good night. Appreciate it, Mike. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Good night. Bye. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.